When I was in high school, a lot of people in the church found themselves talking about two things, the rapture and the will of God. The Left Behind series was in full force, so people everywhere began wondering if they'd make the cut. Would they get out, or would they find themselves stuck here to deal with the strange aftermath of living in a land in which a small percentage of the people had suddenly vanished? Of course, for the limited time we had remaining on the planet, everyone wanted to make sure they did what God wanted them to do, particularly because we didn't have that much longer to be here, or so we all thought. Amidst this, one Wednesday evening during our weekly youth meetup, a wise pastor told us, it was the youth minister, he said, read your Bible and do your homework, and instead of worrying about the will of God as a separate thing to seek from God himself, just pursue God. If you do that, you'll find yourself walking so closely with him that you're guaranteed to be in his will. After a few moments, he added, and if Jesus doesn't come back for a few years, you'll be able to get a job and make this world a better place. That was all sound advice. Furthermore, the youth minister tapped into something that we see in scripture, namely this, you can't find God's will through abstracts. You can only find his will through relationship. Now think about it, he revealed his will to Abraham through relationship. They walked outside and looked at the stars, counted the sand, and took a journey together beginning in Genesis 12, 1 and following. He revealed his will to Moses through relationship. They interacted through the burning bush, went back to Egypt, and then spent a great deal of time together in the wilderness beginning in Exodus 3, 1. He revealed his will to Joshua through relationship. The Bible tells us that even after Moses left the prayer tent, Joshua stayed and lingered with the Lord according to Exodus 33:11. And this is how God reveals his plans for us today, through relationship. Now, in the next few talks, I'm going to discuss how he often uses human relationships to confirm his will for us so that we're never left searching on our own. But that said, we actually do find the phrase, the will of God, in Scripture. And the places we find the phrase become our starting point. And then, as we pursue the relationship with the Father, the Scripture remains our guardrails to ensure we're hearing and heeding His voice. And the Scripture specifically says, there are five things that are the will of God. He desires for you to be, one, saved, two, sanctified, three, spirit-filled, four, submissive, and five, serving. I'm going to walk you through each of these for the remainder of our time together. Number one, saved. First, it's God's will for everyone to be saved. Now, in the past few years, Calvinism has resurged in popularity. John Calvin was a reformer during the time of Martin Luther, who taught voraciously about the sovereignty of God. He wrote massive books detailing his certainty that God was in control of all things. Future generations of theologians, though, took his writings to mean things they didn't actually say, however, and they took his conclusions and meanderings to the next logical, in their thinking, conclusion. If God is in control, they mused, and if all people aren't saved, that must mean that God didn't want all people to be saved. And that must mean that he selected some people for heaven and chose other people for hell. Let's say what? Yeah, you've probably heard that before, especially if you spend any time in church world. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy as he encouraged his son in the faith to pray for the salvation of, now notice this, all people. It's in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. through 4. Here's the quote. This is good. 
and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, after spending several years with Jesus in person, followed by several decades of close relationship with Jesus via spirit, Peter said the same thing. Like many people today, Peter's contemporaries thought Jesus might return any moment. They wondered why he tarried from coming back then, and Peter explained it to them really well in 2 Peter 3.9. He said this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, meaning He's not just waiting to return for no reason. Now, get the conclusion. But He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice, God extended human history precisely so that more of His children could awaken to who they are and walk in relationship with Him. Does God want some people to be saved and others go to hell? Well, don't ask a hardcore Calvinist. They'll tell you yes on both counts. On the other hand, ask Peter or Paul, and they'll tell you emphatically, Jesus wants everyone to be saved. In other words, salvation is the will of God. Let's look at number two, sanctified. Second, it's God's will for everyone to be sanctified. That is, for them to live the radiant expression of the holiness that he's already given them. I like that definition of sanctification, living the radiant expression of the holiness you've been given. It infers that we're not looking for something outside of ourselves. We're awakening, as we learned in talk number two, to the reality that Jesus declared over us from the beginning. Now, for sure, sanctification, it involves living in a certain way, and sometimes we have to learn that way of living. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4, For this is the will of God. There's the phrase, the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. This sanctification is an overflow of our core identity, the total inclusion that we have with Christ because of our salvation. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, here's the quote, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now notably, neither apostle urges us to earn our salvation, nor do they say something like, Jesus saved you, now prove you're saved. The living expression of grace is far more beautiful than rigid obedience. Grace awakens us to a better way. A life that's in alignment with the total inclusion we've been given in Christ, then it lives from that truth. That's sanctification, and that's the will of God. And number three, spirit-filled. Third, it's God's will for everyone to live a spirit-filled life. We spent a couple episodes talking about living in the life of the Spirit. Now, since we've discussed it for several of those talks, I'm really not going to belabor it here. I do want to highlight one thing, though. In Ephesians 5, 17 through 18, Paul contrasts foolishness with the will of God. One life path is wise, the other isn't. And notice that our connection to the Spirit demonstrates which one we've chosen. Here's, here's the quote of Ephesians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So there's our phrase, the will of God. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Paul alludes back to the first post-resurrection Pentecost in this passage. If you remember that, you remember that the people who saw the 120 encounter the Spirit that day, they mocked them, suggesting that they were drunk with wine in Acts 2.13. Now, I've watched some people in churches act like they're drunk. Some even say, come get the new wine of the Spirit. (laughs) They stumble, they act goofy, and they appear out of control. It's obvious they're faking it as they can turn it on and off at will. The Spirit never tosses people away from their faculties. Demons do. The Spirit doesn't control like a gentleman. He leads. He's tender. At the same time, though, that drunken analogy is a good metaphor. You see, you don't have to ask a drunken man if he's drunk, do you? You just look at the evidence, the fruit of his life. Does he stumble, speak with slurred speech, smell like alcohol? In the same way, a person full of the Spirit evidences it. In other words, you should be able to tell if I'm living the Spirit-filled life, and I should be able to determine if you are just by observing the external evidence. Do I exhibit joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, faithfulness? Do you? Am I under the influence that is guided by a substance outside of myself? Remember, it's important to realize that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that we should seek one time. We should continually hunger for the Lord's presence and His constant connection. The phraseology in Ephesians 5.17-18 doesn't simply suggest that we get filled and then stay filled. The Greek for be filled is written in an ongoing active tense. It's better translated as be being filled. So Paul would actually say, understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but continue be being filled with the Spirit. Uh, Billy Graham, he wrote this in his book about the Holy Spirit. He says, the command to be filled with the Spirit actually has the idea of continuously being filled in the original Greek language, which Paul used. We are not once filled for all like a bucket. Instead, we're to be filled constantly. It might be translated, be filled and keep on being filled, or be being filled. Like sanctification, being filled with the Spirit is a lifestyle, in other words. It's something that is active, that is something that we nurture, that we seek, that we do every single day. King Saul, he kept his position as king long after the Lord's presence left. As one pastor writes, he was coasting on yesterday's anointing. He forfeited the fresh anointing. In other words, if you know a story, that's the opposite of be being filled. As believers in the new covenant, we do not have to worry about God leaving us or forfeiting our position. He told us that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. Our position and his presence, they're promised to us according to Hebrews 13.5, as well as a list of other verses. However, We don't simply want God near. We want to experience His presence. We want to access the blessings of that nearness as we become aware of how close that He actually is. And it's important to remember this is the will of God, something He desires as our normal way of life. Now, I don't know how this filling thing works, the notion that we're always full of Christ, yet we can also be filled again. But the beauty of the entire gospel is that things beyond our human comprehension are not beyond our supernatural reception. Receive the connection as a gift and continue stepping forward because being filled with the Holy Spirit is the third thing that is mentioned in the scripture as the will of God. Number four, submissive. 
Fourth, it's God's will for all Christians to live submissive lives. This is yet another term that's been blown off course in our culture, particularly by church people. Let me explain. Submission and obedience are two different things. Where submission deals with your attitude, obedience deals with your actions. Sometimes we can obey. At all times, we can submit. That is, we can always offer honor to others from our heart. Rolling your eyes at your spouse, it has nothing to do with obedience or what we've been asked to do. It's an issue of submission for both the husband and the wife, according to Ephesians 5.21. Disobeying your parents or obeying them after the third request with a huff in your voice, it reveals a lack of submission. Biblically, we can always submit even if we can't always obey. In fact, in his book, Undercover, John Bevere writes this. This is an incredible book. He says, quote, The Bible teaches unconditional submission to authorities, but the Bible does not teach unconditional obedience. Remember, submission deals with attitude, and obedience deals with the fulfillment of what we're told. The only time, and I want to emphasize the only exception in which we're told not to obey authorities, is when they tell us to do something that directly contradicts what God has stated in His Word. In other words, we are released from obedience only when leaders tell us to sin. However, even in those cases, we're to keep a humble and submitted attitude. It's God's will for us to live from a position of humility. In other words, that's what Bavir is saying. Grace is always the right response. Peter summarized it this way in 1 Peter 2, 13-15. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution— whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. There's our phrase. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, notably, the government to whom Peter says that we should submit, again, to submit, not necessarily obey, is the king who beheaded James, Jesus's brother, one of the early leaders in the church that Peter knew very well. Living with honor, quite simply, it silences the accusers. Now, Daniel, he refused to obey the king's edict not to pray to anyone but him in Daniel 6.10. But he didn't act brashly when he did so. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down to the bronze statue of their king in Daniel 3.16. Yet they did so honorably. The apostles refused to cease preaching the gospel when the governing authorities asked them to stop. See Acts 4, 18 through 20. Yet even then, they prayed for those accusers to be saved and saw many of them actually come to salvation. In each case, of all of the above examples and all the others we see in Scripture, the leaders were submissive in their attitude but defiant in their action. And as a result, their accusers were transformed. Many of the priests, again, who opposed the apostles were soon converted according to Acts 6, 7. David didn't hang around the palace when Saul hurled javelins at him, but he retained his submissive attitude, and he even refused to kill Saul when given the opportunity to do so on two separate occasions. Later, David actually killed someone who claimed to have slaughtered King Saul, even though the man was lying and had not done it, because David was avenging the very authority God's anointed who had tried to kill him. The Hebrew midwives, they refused to kill the Hebrew babies as Pharaoh commanded them. And we see God actually bless those women for doing so with families of their own in Exodus 1.17. Many times I've seen that God will test us and our pride by telling the biblical authority over us something different than what we're sensing with our limited insight. 
Or we may be tempted to do something that goes against what's written. Biblically, the only time to go against what an authority has told you to do is when the authority leads you to go against something that God has, here it is, written in His Word explicitly. Not something you twist the Scriptures to say, but something it actually says. I've watched Christians undertake shady business dealings, file for divorce, create relational rifts, and a host of ungodly things, all because, quote, the Holy Spirit told them to do so in their mind. That never works. Submission to Scripture is an authority issue, and submission to all authority is actually the will of God. Well, let's go to the fifth. Number five, serving. It's God's will that we serve. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul outlines some of the bedrock truths of our faith. Here's some of them. Uh, Romans 1, he says God has revealed himself through creation. Romans 2, true faith isn't just outward, it's inward. Uh, Romans 3, everyone has sinned, but we're all destined for glory. Romans 4 says this happens by faith, not by works. Romans 5 says that we're now remade in the image of Christ. Romans 6 says we're alive in Christ and chained now to righteousness instead of bound to sin. Romans 7 says we have the ability inside of us to pursue God's best. Romans 8, we live in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Romans 9, 10, and 11 talk about how God grafted us into the story of faith and radical blessing that Abraham began. And then after telling all of this, Paul begins getting very practical in his letter. He explains how we should live in light of all of those truths that he's just shared. His first observation is this, we should serve. That is, we should allow the goodness and grace that has been poured into us to then overflow to others. In fact, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's the next verse after all of those great nuggets of the faith that he leads us through. He actually says, I I appeal to you as brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and discern the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect will. Now, notably, this passage, Romans 12, is where we first see the charismata, the spiritual gifts mentioned, as well as the first reference to the body of Christ. Those charismata, again, they're the spiritual gifts. They're the supernatural empowerment that uniquely flows through each of us that empowers us to serve in some capacity that is the unique way in which the Holy Spirit expresses himself through us. When we talk about finding God's will for our lives, we most often want to go to the specifics. We want to know where we should live, whom we should marry, what we should pursue as a career path. But the scripture first moves away from those specifics and to the very general when it talks about God's will. The written expression of the word provides us with a path of markers that are true for everyone. We just walk through them. You see, the Father desires for everyone, here's the recap, to number one, be saved. That is, to be awakened to everything that Jesus has achieved for us. Number two, to be sanctified. That's to live the radiant expression of the holiness that you've been given. Number three, to be spirit-filled. That's to hunger for the Lord's presence and His constant connection. Number four, to be submissive, to live from a position of honor and humility, as grace is always the right response. And number five, to serve. 
That is to express the very life of Christ that's in us, through us, to others. Those things, these things, these five are always right. To then get to the specifics, we must pursue intimacy. And part of that includes understanding the unique way in which he's designed each of us individually. So what I'm going to do in the next series of maybe four or five talks is we're going to actually start landing on the things that are unique where you have this created design upon you. For now, though, here's my prayer, is that the Lord will bless you, that he will keep you, that he will be gracious to you, that he will shine his great face of favor upon you, and that you will see those broad, specific things that are mentioned as the will of God for everyone, because for you, for me, for all of us, they are all the same, that he wants you and me and all people to be safe, that he wants you and me and all people to be sanctified, to live out that expression of holiness that we've been given, that he wants you and me to overflow with the abundance of the supernatural that's been given and implanted in us. Until next time, grace, peace, shalom.